Welcome to the fourth episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures. In this episode, we will talk about the Haitian Revolution and the Latin American Revolution. Very sorry about the audio quality. Thank you and enjoy. Here is really the 
I mean, this is the leading producer of the two most valuable cash crops in the Americas at the time. If you look at sugar and coffee, a huge percentage of it's coming out of Haiti. So there's huge organized plantation systems, organized by the whole intendant French mercantile system, that are extremely profitable, extremely profitable. And when you have a colony set up like this, it really creates a situation where if you have 570,000 people there, 500,000 of those are slaves. That's an overwhelming majority. Now, here's the deal. How do you keep that, how do the 70,000 keep the other 500,000 at bay? How do they keep them organized, keep them on plantations? Well, the system is on their side. They have the military, they have all that kind of stuff. And the slaves don't have that organization or that communication. You know, they really don't ever leave the plantation. So they don't know how much of a majority they really are, even in some cases. Not that they're you know, dumb or stupid or anything. It's just that they don't have that access. They don't, you know, they're more ignorant as far as that goes. And they don't really have the organization like what some of these others are going to have. You know, when we look at the American Revolution, well, as soon as they start talking about revolting, they already know what kind of, well, kind of what constitution they want, what they're fighting for. They're well-educated, well-read, well-organized. They build a military. They train it. They get some of the best trainers in the world to come over from Prussia. They get the French help. They get all these people together. It's organized. It's a unified movement. We're going to see that happen in some of the Spanish-American revolutions, too. The Haitian Revolution is not like that. When this slave revolt starts... It's really just a hysterical outbreak that really has no unity or of movement or anything to it at all. All right. Now, so when you look at the breakdown here, the social classes here, you've got several different ones here. You've got kind of this grand blanc class that would be, if you want to equate the aristocracy and bourgeoisie together, that would be these guys. Uh, the people that own the plantations, the large merchants that trade the sugar and trade the coffee off of the plantations. All of those connected here. That would be your grand blocks. You have your petite blocks, which would be more like your peasants or urban workers that don't really have a lot of money, but they're European by nature there. And then you have some others that are either freed slaves, former slaves, or maybe their ancestors' grandfathers or great-grandfathers maybe were uh, slaves and were freed at some point. Um, but we're not European, free people of color, either from Africa or there's probably not many natives left just because most of those, especially in these Caribbean islands, uh, were the most victim of the diseases. So they were, they're pretty much gone. But there may have been some of those left. All right. So when you start hearing about revolution, because remember, this is a French colony. So if you look at the dates, you know, this starts in 1791. Well, what's going on in France in 1791? The French Revolution is going it's full swing, right? So, when that happens, and they come out with the credo of the French Revolution of liberty, fraternity, and equality, you're talking about these characteristics. And we kind of mentioned this last week a little bit, but... Everybody has a different mentality 
or a different view of what equality means, of what liberty means. All right? For example, if I'm a member of the bourgeoisie class in France in 1789, when the French Revolution starts, when we're saying equality, what do we mean by equality? From the bourgeoisie perspective, Alex? That the um, nobles can also be taxed. Exactly. We want equal taxes for everybody, right? Get rid of aristocratic and clerical privileges. That's what that means. They, the last thing they want is to give everybody equal representation in government because then they're not going to have a say. They're going to be drowned out with the votes of the masses of the peasants and the urban workers. and Those guys are crazy radical people. They don't want that. Equality means no aristocratic privilege. Whereas workers in Paris think that equality means direct democracy, let the general will prevail, according to Rousseau. Right? The peasants meet, what is the uh, peasants' viewpoint of equality? The peasants think everybody's equal if if we take the land and we distribute it evenly among everybody. Everybody has their own little land. That's equality for peasants. So you have different interpretations and different wants and different needs depending on your different points of view, right? So how do these all mesh together? Well, in Haiti, you've got different, the same kind of things depending on social classes. For these grand blocks, these people that are pretty wealthy, they've profited somewhat from this mercantile empire, they don't need big changes. They just think liberty means freedom from French mercantilism, meaning I can now trade whatever I want to with whoever I want to. I don't have to pay taxes and tariffs on any goods coming in from the British area, the New World of America, any of that. We can trade with who we want to, which is great because now people are going to start competing for my sugar. People want to start competing for, with, my, with my coffee, all the stuff that I'm producing, right? I can make even more money than what I was making before. And I'm already making pretty good money, so this is great. That's all that means, small changes, right? For these guys, people feel like if you're one of the petite blocks, one of the poor, well, this means equal opportunity. Liberty, freedom means that we're getting rid of this social order that's keeping me down. And now I can go own my own land. I can go make a living for myself. Just give me the opportunity. That's what these guys think. For the free people of color, same thing, except we're not going to be discriminated based on racial grounds, pretty much. Because there are certain laws that prohibit free people of color from doing things. And um, they feel like equality means getting rid of those laws. And then the slaves obviously means no more slaves. That's what they feel like. When they hear freedom, or I guess liberty, equality, when they hear things like that, because they hear that a French revolution is going on, are we free also? Are all men truly created equal? Because that's a game changer in Haiti to 500,000 people out of the 570, right? So, that's what they hear. And when they figure out that's not necessarily the case, that's when the revolts start happening. All right? Um, and it's, like I said, there's not a leader that really comes in and says, hey, we're revolting. Everybody just starts going crazy. It's kind of like the great fear. 
in um, France in 1789. Nobody really goes and starts that with all these different cousins. They just all start going crazy and start overthrowing their own local lords, and they go next door, and they start overthrowing those local lords. The nobility class is under attack. That's what happens here with the slaves. They overthrow the Grand Blancs in this plantation. They go to the next plantation, and they just go uh, plantation, plantation, that was downtown, and are just overthrowing everything, going crazy, hysterical. The problem is there's no organization to this movement. So they can't really rally together. And the Grand Blancs have a chance of repelling this. Now, a decade before this, two decades before this, what's the first thing that would have happened? <coughs> this is a great contextual question. In the 1750s, this would have never even been possible. Why? Right. Why are they not doing that in 1791? They're going through their own revolt, and they're at war with all of Europe. Remember, the first coalition is starting to gather here. We're getting close to that 1791, 92, 93 time period when France is at war with almost everybody across Europe. And, you know, this goes on into the 1800s when Napoleon's taken over. The last thing they can do is send ships over to here. Actually, by 1804, Napoleon had lost all his ships to the British, but he can't spare troops here. Yes, ma'am. Um, why did this man go back and kind of that If what? If that's, if he didn't. Oh, so if he didn't. Yeah. It's kind of like, okay, what's this going to happen? You know? Um, the enlightened ideals are out there, but there's no change. And so they're not happy with that. All right? But the king didn't really say that. These are rumors. But nothing happens there. Um, and you know what happens to the king here in 1792? The king's gone. They, they chop his head off. So it's coming up pretty soon where they kind of feel like that was their last chance, but it really wasn't. The king wasn't going to make that big of a change. All right? So, because this is his number one cash cow. This is his big money maker. Haiti or Santo Domingo. So the slaves start to get a certain level of organization. Um, one of their leaders here is one of the free people of color there, um, the uh, Tuisamble Overture. And he is educated. We might loop him in with this bourgeoisie class somewhat. Um, and probably just as frustrated for the same reason. Some of these free people of color have made a decent living for themselves financially because maybe they were tied in with some of the super wealthy people, their families back in the day or even more recently. And so they may have had a certain level of education that the bourgeoisie would have had. So he's in step with some of this enlightenment change and stuff. But he organizes the movement and pretty much leads it to victory here. We won't get into too many specifics here, but he is a name to remember from the Haitian Revolution. All right? Now, so what happens as a result? Well, we've already talked about this is the first time we've seen a slave revolt actually succeed in overthrowing a government and creating a new one. So they really don't, this is unprecedented. They don't really know what to do here. All right? And they don't really know how to set up 
what kind of government, those kind of things. And we're going to see this being a theme everywhere in the Americas except for the 13 original American colonies. All right? Now, and we'll talk about the reason why for that in a little bit. The American colonies already knew what to do. Remember, the American colonies have been ruling themselves since the beginning of the colonies in the first place anyways. Um, um, even when they went to go create something, pretty much if Kevin wants to go create a colony, uh, Kevin and Andy, what, what, was your, what was your colony? Kevinville, that's like a city, not a colony. All right, you think about this. All right. Now, uh, but if he goes and creates a colony, he has to go get a charter, and then he goes and sets up how it's going to be organized. And he's pretty much governing this thing with the blessing of the king or queen at the time, and pretty much it's developing with a certain level of autonomy. That's what the whole joint stock company, that kind of stuff, was all about, right? Well, in everywhere else, in the French colonies and the Spanish colonies, Everything has always been dictated, mandated down to them from the king and from the king's advisors. The intendant system for French mercantilism and the vice royalty system for the Spanish mercantilism, right? You guys remember that. So they don't really know how to govern. They've never had to. So when it comes their turn, they win their independence. Now what? And that plagues these issues because they're not successful in how they create their new government. In Haiti, what does that look like? You know, you have a group of slaves that have just kicked out everybody else. You really have a nation of former slaves who are not educated. Like I said, I'm not calling them dumb or stupid, but they're not educated. They don't know anything about political systems. And the only kind of agriculture they really know, sugar plantation level agriculture, coffee plantation level agriculture. So when it comes time for this, they don't really know what to do. So, what they do is, they pretty much divide the land out amongst all the slaves. And they pretty much just say, you're on your own. Take care of it yourself. And so, they get away from this commercialized agricultural mentality, and they get into more subsistence level agriculture. Because if you look at this colony before, 40% of the world's sugar, 50% of the world's coffee, whatever, that has the foundation for a very wealthy, successful nation. But when we think of Haiti today, it's not really like that. They're not great in administration. Well, they've had some natural disaster issues in the last couple of months. I mean, a lot of stuff in history. But they're not really great in administration, economically not great with trade, subsistence level agriculture. So it turns into not a very wealthy area. And we're going to see this kind of be a theme across a lot of the Latin American uh, areas as well. All right, so we have more subsistence level farmers and those kind of things here. All right, but this is the, you know, the first time we've seen, actually I think it's the only time, I don't think it's anyone's seen either, of slaves winning their revolution. Now the context is France can't <coughs> stop it, but... That's what we see here. Now, with the Spanish-American Revolution, we'll just set these up today. We won't actually get into the individual ones until tomorrow, but let's provide some of the context here. We've seen a French Revolution. That's kind of the only one that's actually in the European area. <clears throat> the British colonies rebelling against Great Britain. That's the American Revolution. 
French colony rebelling against France. Now, the collapse of the Spanish colonial system. And we're going to see some parallels with some of the others here, too, because this is inspired by all of those that we just talked about. You look at the American Revolution, that kind of inspired a lot, right? That's the first victory of Enlightenment ideals. Even though there's not really a lot of change, it's still it's a big victory for liberals at the time. French Revolution, a lot of social achievements there, some political changes, some victories for Enlightenment, you know, those kind of things. But major social overhauls, I guess, there. And then the Haitian Revolution, obviously, that's a huge social overhaul. overhaul. Now, in the Spanish colony, we do have that emerging bourgeoisie class in our Spanish castist system. Think back to your Spanish classism. What might possibly be that bourgeoisie class? Because this mirrors what we see in France, really. They don't necessarily have an influential clergy class. There's a lot of clergy around, but they're not politically active, I guess. But there is an aristocratic class, and there is a bourgeoisie class. What are they called? No. Well, not the Matisse and the Lotto. What would you say? The Creole class. All right? Because the Creole class is... Predominantly European, probably some of the merchants and some of the people that have made some kind of business over here in the New World, but just underneath that peninsulare class. Remember, the peninsulare class, the vice royalties and those, are the people that are government officials that came over from Spain just to govern, just to rule, that own land and own territory. The Creoles are people that have had to make their own living over here. They've educated themselves, they're hardworking, and they're wanting a lot of the same thing that the bourgeois France wants, an even playing field to get rid of the peninsulares. They don't necessarily have to worry about getting rid of the king and stuff like that. It's not like that. They would have heard about these things. They would have been pretty well in step with the Enlightenment and the ideals there. But there's a difference between these guys and the North Americans. All right? Um, we had, these are all the things that are upsetting me. You know, the, the Spanish mercantile system, the high tariffs and taxes, and the social class. All right, so that's what we talked about there. Now, the biggest difference between these, and again, we've already mentioned this, but this is something that's going to affect the history of these Latin American countries for the next 150 years after this. Even though they can win these revolutions, because Spain's having the same issue France is having. They're pretty much under the control of Napoleon at this time. Their military's been defeated and being used over in Europe. There's not really many people to stop them. The peninsulares are there, and they can kind of combat to help stop. But for the most part, these revolutions are all going to be successful in throwing out the old system. But the Creoles, being bourgeois members, I guess if you want to think of it as a larger bourgeoisie class, they kind of want the same thing, a republic that has limited representation. We don't want to turn things over to the peasants. We don't want to turn things over to the massive mob of the people. We want to make sure that maybe the top 10% of people vote and have a say in government. 
That's it. But how do we do that? In North America, it's easy. That's what these guys have been doing forever anyways. Right? The founding fathers in the middle of the 1700s, they were calling the shots. And then all of a sudden, Great Britain and the king and parliament trying to come in and say, nope, you got to do this, you got to pay these taxes, we're going to crack down on you. Founding fathers say, we're not really used to this. <clears throat> we're used to autonomy. We're used to governing ourselves. And then they fight, and they go back to doing the same thing they used to always do, governing themselves. Now, in the Spanish colonies, and in Haiti as well, the French colonies, the vice royalty system was not set up like that. The vice royalty system and the viceroys are pretty much there to execute or implement the policies of the king and the crown and all of his big fancy advisors back in Spain. Just like the intendant system in France was there to do the same thing. Everything was mandated down. They had zero self-governance or zero autonomy. So when it comes to most of these, are, well, all of these are going to be successful, what do we set up? And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we see the American Revolution being the first one there, too, because they're used to that. Here in Spain, they don't really, sorry, in the Spanish colonies, they don't really know anything else. So when it comes time to, you mean there's something else? It's kind of the question. When it comes time to revolt, I guess we could do it. They did it in North America. They did it in France. They did it in Haiti. Hey, we could do it too, maybe. But then what? What do we set up? Because all of these republics that they try to emulate, Montesquieu and all the Enlightenment I do, they all fail. Pretty much every single one of them. I'm trying, I can't think of one that really doesn't fail in the Latin American countries, because they don't know what they're doing. And for the next hundred years, you have this republic from the bourgeoisie, ends up not working out very well, there's fighting, military dictatorship takes over, and then another military dictatorship takes over, and all these individual despots come in and take over. And that becomes the trend, even up to modern day. I mean, Colombia's gone through its insurgences and all that kind of stuff in the last few years. Uh, Venezuela has done the same thing. Very politically unstable. Alright? So that becomes the trend here for the Latin American countries just because they don't really know what they're doing. I mean, you know, not that success is still out there, I guess, but for the most part, I guess we started with the Articles of Federation that last long, but since the 1780s, we've had the same constitution. It's been amended as we're on the same republic. France is on its sixth republic in the same amount of time. These guys, their republics lasted maybe two decades. And then they've gone through all these other things and they're trying to sort it out still. So I guess you can give our founding fathers some credit in the fact that maybe they set it up decently. Now, like I said, there's problems and issues, but it's somewhat stable compared to what we've seen as a result of some of these others. Okay? So um, what we're going to start to see, Spain is in is mixed up with the same stuff France was when the Haitians were revolting there. They can't come stop it. Napoleon's pretty much occupied here. Spain, you know, the golden age of Spain's been over for a couple centuries at this point. So there's not really much we can do here. All right. So it's up to Peninsulares to try to stop it on their own, and there's. 
and a formidable force. We shouldn't overlook these peninsulares. They have their own local militaries and those kind of things. And for the most part, these colonial revolts are not going to be very well organized. The bourgeoisie are going to lead some of that, but, you know, it's, it's not, these peninsulares are no joke. All right? And we see the social struggles that are coming out. The Creoles versus the peasants, the Creoles versus the peninsulares, the peasants versus the peninsulares. We see somewhat of that same dynamic that we see in France that does not exist in North America. Again, we're doing a lot of comparisons here. I'm trying to bring them all together for you. But the social dynamics are different depending on which region you're talking about. And this class, or this casteist system, I guess, is different even though we see in France. You know, the, the French have the old feudal order to deal with. These guys have the dynamics between the peasants, the mestizos, and the mulattoes, and the, the racial tensions that might exist there. And North America has, really, it's the simplest, the bourgeoisie. That's pretty much the only one. You've got some of the urban workers, what would have been like the urban working class, with the Sons of Liberty and stuff in Boston and those kind of harbors, but for the most part, they're in step with the bourgeoisie was. Same enemy, common enemy there. All right? And we'll get into Mexico and then all the others tomorrow. That'll be it for Thank you for tuning into the fourth episode of Elrod's Educational Lectures.